Well, are you doing well? As always, it is fun to be back with you here at Timberlake, and if this is your first time here, you've already seen that I am not the usual guy that does the talking around here. That's uh, Pastor Ben, and he is out of town. He told me what he was doing. I, I forget. I, I think he's teaching dance or something this weekend, so whatever. Uh, we'll let him have fun. I brought my son with me. He's in the kids program right now. He's nine years old. True story. Uh, we were here about two years ago in the summer, and he still remembered uh, this church which is really cool because he's like, he was seven years old at the time. And he's like, that's the church that gives away free food, right, Dad? I'm like, really? And he goes, and they have an Xbox in their kids program. So just know you're making a massive difference in the life of these kids. Uh, well, last week we kicked off a series called Regift. The whole premise of the series, pretty simple. It's that uh, occasionally in life, when you get a gift that you don't like, or maybe you like, but you don't have a way of using, you regift it. If you've ever been to a white elephant gift exchange, it's the whole premise of the party or the gift exchange, right? It's to take this gift and to repackage it and give it to somebody else. Now, I grew up in a large family. There were seven of us kids. And so as you can imagine, there was some regifting going on in our family. My dad worked at a factory. My mom stayed at home raising us. And so I'm just telling you, it was just part of the culture of Christmas. We would get used gifts. In fact, I was uh, nine or 10 years old and uh, can still clearly remember this, where my mom took me aside a couple days before Christmas and she said, Dave, I'm gonna just tell you what you're getting this year because I, I want you to just try to act excited. She said, I picked up an R2-D2 robot from a garage sale earlier in the summer and she goes, and I never tested it. And so uh, I tested it a couple days ago and realized it goes back and forth, but it doesn't do anything else. It's supposed to spin around and have all of these different motions, but it doesn't do any of that. And so will you at least act excited? And even at nine or 10, I kind of got the fact that we didn't have a lot of extra resources. And so I said, of course, I'll act excited. And so on Christmas Eve, which is when we opened our gifts, Man, I ripped that thing open. I was totally pumped. But my uncle, my mom's brother, had no clue that this was kind of a, a used gift and it was kind of set up. And so he just kept saying, that's a piece of junk. You need to return it. And I was like devastated. I wanted my uncle to think I had some cool kind of toy. But that was uh, my upbringing to an extent. You know, occasionally we'd get something a little bit nicer. Uh, but I'm guessing that most of us, when we think about the whole idea of regifting, think about something like that. Oh, how lame. Or why would someone do that? In many ways, we probably think it's not the best kind of etiquette to have. And I guess that could be true, depends on what you're regifting. But in reality, regifting can be a very good and a very godly thing. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, one of the great leaders of the early church, he wrote a letter to followers of Jesus living in Philippi a couple thousand years ago. And here's what he writes. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Now, this is a fascinating thought. The Apostle Paul says, hey, listen, when I was with you, you saw me pray for you. You saw me evidence what it was like to deal with tough conversations and how to navigate that. You saw what it was like for me to take my limited resources and be generous. You saw all that. And now what I'm going to ask you to do is take what you've seen from me and pass it on to somebody else. I want you to continue the trend. I want you to pay it forward. 
Some of you might be familiar with the name Cheryl Pruitt. Uh, Cheryl grew up in a rural area where her father owned a small country grocery store. And as a little girl, she would work there in the summers. She would act like she's helping her dad. And I say act because she was probably more of a nuisance than anything. Uh, But throughout the summer, the milkman would come by on a weekly basis. And when he would see Cheryl, he would recognize her and try to tell her how beautiful she was. He would always walk up to her and rub her head and ask this question. How's my little Miss America doing? And she would just smile. And then she'd stand next to him as he put the milk bottles on the shelves. And week after week, he would do this. And then the next summer would come in the same routine. He'd come in and he'd smile at her and say, you're so beautiful. How's my little Miss America doing? Well, eventually what happened is that went from being a childhood fantasy for Cheryl to a lifelong dream. And sure enough, in 1980, she stood on a stage in Atlantic City and she took home the Miss America title. And while she was on stage giving out her credits, she thanked God, she thanked her family, but she also took time to thank the milkman who years and years earlier would look at her and appreciate her and tell her how beautiful she was and would ask that question, how's my little Miss America doing? It's just a great reminder of the power of our words. A great reminder of the power of encouragement. In fact, I think of that story almost daily when my daughters are leaving for school. I still rub them on the head and I ask the question, how's my little Miss Millionaire doing? How's my little Miss America or Millionaire, right? Take care of daddy. And so the fact is our words have power. And for Cheryl Pruitt, what's happened is she has made it her life mission to use her words in her life to inspire other people. Her whole life, that's what she does now. And it started with the milkman. It's called re-gifting. And the premise of this whole series is that as followers of Jesus, it is the mission of our life. It's what we're called to, to take what God does in our life and to repackage it and give it away to somebody else. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus looked at his followers who had spent time with him, And he said this, he says, give as freely as you have received. Now, when I pause my life and I think about the many, many things that I've received in my life over the past 40 years, it's an exhaustive list. Just like your list is probably exhaustive, right? My life, just like your life, is an exhaustive list. It is a blend of relationships, unique experiences, opportunities that have come my way, good things, bad things, successes, failures, wins, losses. And so the question that I have to consider, and it's the same question you have to consider, is what am I going to do with the things I've received? What am I going to do with the lessons? Am I going to hold them in and keep them to myself? What am I going to do with the opportunities? Am I going to share them with other people or am I going to hide them from them? What am I going to do with my words? Am I going to use my words to build someone up or am I going to use my words to tear someone down? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're pretty much obligated to say, you know what I'm going to do with my life? You know what I'm going to do with my talents? You know what I'm going to do with my gifts? You know what I'm going to do with my opportunities? I'm going to share them with others. As limited as they may be, as small as my talent pool seems like to me in my own life, right? I'm going to take and I'm going to do for others what God and others have done for me. I am going to re-gift. 
Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, one of the gifts uh, that we've received in our life, and it's possible it's become white noise, and this season is a great season to kind of revisit it, rethink about it, is the birth of Jesus. You know, it's easy for us to forget because we live in 2015 and we live in America and this is just part of our culture and how we think. It's easy for us to forget that prior to the birth of Jesus, most of civilization had the idea about God that he was against them and he was mad at them and he was angry at them all the time. When you study ancient cultures, it's just so obvious that the idea of God was that he was out to get them. You better watch out, you better not cry. I mean, that was the mentality. It's the reason that ancient cultures would often associate horrible tragedies, hurricanes, natural disasters, flooding, drought, famine. They would attribute that to God and think we must have done something to tick God off. God is absolutely mad. He's absolutely livid at us. And so they would, in the midst of that, try to think, how can we appease God and make him happy? Because they were insecure of where they stood with him. They were scared. They just wanted to have peace in their life. Well, the birth of Jesus ushered in a completely new way of seeing God. Jesus embodied God. And when he walked this plant, people saw him in a different way. In fact, years and years and years prior to his birth, uh, the prophet Isaiah talks about him and writes this specifically about his titles and his reputation. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the birth of Jesus opened eyes, uh, the eyes of people that, hey, wait a minute, God is not out to condemn us. He's not out to get us. He's not out, better watch out, better not cry. I don't have to wonder, am I in or am I out? Does he love me? Does he love me not? No. He is actually a God full of mercy and compassion. He's slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. And so the birth of Jesus is really for you and I a gift of peace. Because unlike ancient civilizations who had to wonder where they stood with God, we can know where we stand with God. We know that our sins have been forgiven once and for all, the past, the present, and the future. We know that God loves us. We know that we have security and confidence in him. And since we are at peace with God and we know his love and we feel secure in it, it is our responsibility to now re-gift that and give it to others. That's why Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Now some of you are old enough to remember when uh, John uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono got married back in 1969. Right, anybody going to admit that they could actually remember this on the news? All right, just a couple, just a couple willing to admit it. Well, what was fascinating is after they got married, they honeymooned uh, for an entire week at a hotel in Amsterdam, and they never got out of bed, which isn't all that unusual, right, for a honeymoon, except for they invited the media into their room as a publicity stunt and as a way of calling attention to a message that was burning in their hearts. And of course, that message was to give peace a chance. Now, what do you think it would look like in our world if we could just do that for the month of December? What do you think it would look like in a world if we could just do that for a week? 
as we're getting to the end of 2015, if we could just say, all right, all around the world, we're gonna implement living at peace with one another. How do you think it would affect the people you interact with on a daily basis? How do you affect, think it would affect the, the nightly news? On Christmas Eve in 1914, uh, the First World War had just started and a great battle had taken place in St. Eva's, Belgium. On one side were the Germans and on the other side were the French and the British. And it's happened very frequently uh, during World War I. The two sides got to a gridlock, so they came to a standstill. And when that would happen, they would both go into digging ditches. And so they started digging ditches. And uh, there was often space between the two different armies, usually about 60 or 80 yards. And that space was called no man's land. And it earned that title because the idea was no man can go into that space and expect to live. And so in this particular battle, there were 100,000 troops involved, and the ditches went on for miles and miles and miles. Very ferocious battle had gone on for over a month. The weather conditions were deplorable, kind of like Seattle this weekend, right? Both sides had suffered many, many casualties, and so no man's land was filled with a bunch of dead bodies, and they were decomposing, and they had just a wretched, wretched smell to them. Well, as Christmas Day drew close, the Germans decided that they were going to get into the spirit of Christmas. And so they actually set up some trees and they started putting up decorations and they started putting candles on the trees to light them up. And on Christmas Eve, they started to sing the song Silent Night. And they sang it over and over and over until eventually the British and the French soldiers joined in and started singing with them. Well, of course, as everybody is singing in their different trenches, some of the soldiers start to get very teary-eyed and sentimental because the song reminded them of happier times. But they continued singing the Christmas carols and they started shouting Christmas greetings between the different sides. And at one point, what happened was the Germans decided to put a white flag on top of their Christmas tree saying, let's just call a truce, right? It's Christmas Eve, let's, let's not fight one another and... After several hours, the, the British and the French decided to reciprocate, and they put a white flag on top of their tree and called a truce. Well, then, things got a little bit out of hand because one of the soldiers dared another soldier to actually go into no man's land carrying a white flag and seeing how real this truce was, and sure enough, they did it, and it worked. And before you knew it, both sides were meeting in the middle of no man's land and they were greeting each other with Christmas greetings. They were singing carols together. They were shaking each other's hands. And what's so fascinating about this is it was totally an unofficial truce. It just happened. It just evolved. It just kind of came together. And nobody knew it at the time, but that truce was going to lead them into an amazing week because Christmas Eve turned into Christmas Day. And at Christmas Day, they continued the truce. And they actually went out and helped each other in the middle of no man's land, take off some of the dead bodies and bury them and give them funerals. Some of the soldiers actually wept openly over the enemy's bodies, knowing that it was possibly one of their bullets that had killed them. And so over the course of the next several days, what happened is the two sides continued their truth and they continued to celebrate together. They actually played soccer together. They traded tobacco and cognac and chocolate and guns, and soccer balls, and souvenirs. 
They hung out together. They started developing a loose friendship. We actually have accounts of soldiers laughing and talking uh, late into the night. They would laugh hysterically as they would just shoot guns into the air and make all of these different noises. And we have accounts of both sides how they actually started to serve each other. They would go and take some of the Christmas gifts that they had received from home and they would trade them with one another. We read about one barber cutting the hair of an enemy soldier. On top of that, since most of them were Christians, they actually held church services together and they read scripture together and prayed together. It was a crazy week, 100,000 soldiers participating in this unofficial truce. But of course, not everybody was totally involved in it. Not everybody was excited about this. And so some of the soldiers actually had to be quarantined. They were put off to the side and put in a lockdown, basically. One of those soldiers was a young man by the name of Adolf Hitler. But the majority of the soldiers were totally into this and celebrating and singing and laying down their guns in honor of the birth of Jesus. Well, as you can imagine, when the generals back home started getting wind of this, they were livid. They had never initiated this truce. They had never called for it. And so they commanded them to immediately get back to fighting. And so on January 1st, 1915, the fighting resumed. And it didn't stop again for another three years until another eight million soldiers were dead. And so the Christmas truce of 1914 became one of the most memorable experiences of World War I. And it actually changed the way that the different sides did war. The British implemented a policy that said after uh, enough weeks of serving in a specific area, they would move soldiers from location to location because they didn't even want to create the possibility of developing some sort of friendship or camaraderie with the enemy. And the reason they had to come up with this new policy is they realized a very powerful truth. And that is the moment an enemy becomes a human, they're going to be much more difficult to kill. The moment that I stop seeing someone as just a slang term or a stereotype or some sort of curse word, the more difficult it is going to be for me to kill them with my words or with my attitude or with my actions. See, I can justify my anger and I can justify my bitterness and I can justify all of that if that person is less than a human. If I can dehumanize them in my mind, well, I can go ahead and, and find ways to, to hurt them and convince myself it's okay. As I was reflecting on that story this past week, I started to think about like the implications of the truce being over. Like on January 1st, 1915, when they went back to war against one another, like, man, what do you think that did inside of them? I mean, they weren't deep friends by that point, but you certainly had seen the human side of each other. The typical age of a soldier in World War I was 19 years old. So just, just imagine for a moment a German soldier by the name of Hans. And... Imagine for a moment a British soldier by the name of William. For a week, they play soccer together. They exchange stories. They share meals. Maybe they speak the, the broken language of each other. Maybe there's some sort of interpreter. Maybe just through actions, they explain what's going on in their life. Hans tells William about his wife back home and his newborn baby and how he misses them so much. William tells Hans about his 
ill and depressed mom, how she only had two kids. One of them's already been killed in war, but now she's back home severely uh, scared that her only other son is going to die. And so for a week, they share all these things in common, their, their loneliness, their fears, their, their interests. And, and again, it just raises this question to me. How do you go back to fighting? How do you get back on mission after that? How do you go back to pointing rifles at one another? How does William look at Hans and say, hey man, I, I'm sorry, but I've got orders to make your wife a widow and your newborn child an orphan. How does Han say to William, sorry, we, we've had some good times, but I, I've got a duty to try and make your mother go crazy by killing the only remaining son that she has. Now, however they did it, we know this. It was awkward. Because it's much more difficult to kill somebody when you get in touch with their humanity. And you realize that the only reason you're shooting at each other is because you come from different countries and you were born in different locations and maybe your leaders have beef with one another. The only way they could truly go back to fighting is to, again, dehumanize the other person. And so the obvious question that just rises at a time like this and, and reflecting on a story like this is like, why can't we live with an ongoing truce? Like, what is it in our world that we just can't live with an ongoing pattern of peace? Why is it that every single evening on the news, there's always another Ferguson or another Paris or another San Bernardino? The, abs the answer has almost nothing to do with the system of government. See, we can argue, well, democratic or communist or social, we could can, can go, but it really has nothing to do with that. The bottom line is that every single kingdom in this world kind of operates with the same kind of thinking. They have this power over type of thinking, this like, I'm going to control you, I'm going to do what I have to do to win. That's how they operate. And as a result of this idea that I have to win and I have to be in charge and I have to be at the top of the ladder, earthly kingdoms are always going to be defined by war. Always. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Right? That's always going to be the mentality. They're always going to be defined by war and conflict and one-upping one another and doing whatever it takes to win. And I'm not talking about just countries. This isn't like some sort of political talk. I, I, I hope this is clear. Right? What I'm talking about today is a mentality that has to change in our thinking. All right? So, so again, this isn't like anti-government. This isn't anti-war. This isn't, I, I'm not calling everybody to be a pacifist. I realize that we need military, right? We have to have people that at some level protect us. In fact, Romans chapter 13 states that there are earthly kingdoms in our world and they're supposed to preserve law and justice and order. But what I'm trying to convey is that earthly kingdoms or that kind of thinking are always going to struggle using the power that they have in a responsible way. Because when you want to win and you want to succeed and you want to get ahead and you think you're better than other people, you just, you tend to use weapons. You tend to do whatever you have to do to accomplish your mission. And so earthly kingdoms are always going to be symbolized by the sword. They're always going to be symbolized by some sort of weapon. And sure, it could be a physical weapon, but it certainly could be a weapon of our words. Our attitude, our actions 
can be a weapon. You know, the United States is considered the most powerful nation in the world. It's not because of our generosity or because of our love or kindness. It's because we have a military budget of $600 billion. Now again, I appreciate our military. I lost my brother in Iraq. But here's the deal. You take the next 10 most powerful nations after the United States and combine their budget, it doesn't even match our countries. I'm glad we live in a country that protects us. But if we are not careful, this kind of thinking is going to sink into every one of our minds where it's just like, yeah, absolutely. We're going to go to war, and I'm not talking about getting another country. I'm talking about with each other. I'm going to use my Facebook status to create anger and create emotion. I'm going to do what I need to do to prove that I'm a winner. And so we have to be careful to not blend the way earthly kingdoms operate and the way God kingdoms operate because they are two very distinct kingdoms. The kingdom of God is not even just a new and improved earthly kingdom. It's a completely different kind of kingdom. It's a different kind of operation. It's a completely alternative way of doing life. In earthly kingdoms, people are always battling for power and control over one another. That is not the way God's kingdom operates. In fact, in John chapter 18, final week of Jesus' life, Roman soldiers come to arrest him, and his disciples, who've been with him three years, they ought to know how he thinks by now, just naturally do what all of us would do. They pull out their weapons, right? They go for their swords, and they say, Jesus, we're going to protect you. And he tells them, put your weapons away. And then he explains. He says, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus says, man, there's a vast difference between earthly kingdoms and my kingdom. Earthly kingdoms are defined by conflict. They're defined by war. They're defined by I have to win. They're defined by I got to one-up the other person. God's kingdom is defined by peace. God's kingdom is defined by getting people from different demographics and ages and backgrounds and bringing them together as one. God's kingdom looks at people who are the very opposite of who I may be or who you may be, and saying, we are still one. We are equal in God's eyes. On one occasion when Jesus heard his disciples arguing about who is the greatest, about which of them ought to be considered better than the others, he interrupts them, and here's what we read. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this world, we've got all types of titles and symbols to indicate power and authority. Right, we've got a crown, and when we see a crown, it is very much indica- uh, uh, indicative of a person being in control. Right, you, you look at a presidential seal, and it's very much a, a symbol of power, and they have the final say. You look at a gavel, and it is a symbol of authority. And some of the smartest people in our world will stay up late into the night trying to think of more symbols and more titles and more ways to express power and authority and control and success. 
But God's kingdom is defined by a completely different kind of symbol. God's kingdom is symbolized by the cross. And as you know, the cross is not a symbol of abundance. It's, it's really a symbol of loss. It's not a symbol of life. It's a symbol of death. It's not a symbol of power or status. It's a symbol of the ultimate humiliation. One of the greatest mysteries in our world is how this God, with all this power and all this control and all this wealth and everything at his disposal, how he would choose as a symbol of his love and as a symbol of his character, a cross. And so the question is, we wrap up today that we just have to wrestle with is, okay, what kingdom am I going to be a part of? What's going to symbolize my life? Is it going to be the sword or is it going to be a cross? Now, for those of you with fiery personalities and you just react to everything, I get it if you would say, my life is defined by a sword because that's what my life's been defined like for like 37 years. But about three years ago, something happened uh, to me that just changed everything. And I'm not going to get into the details. I've shared this story before. I was at a courthouse in Kenosha supporting someone I loved, and I just got fired up, and they literally called security on me. As the pastor of a church in Kenosha, they called security on me, and it's like, are you kidding me? And I get into my car after this whole event unfolds, and I thought, really? I'm 37 years old, and I haven't learned to master my emotions yet. I haven't learned to get this under control. Why do I think it's better to pick up a sword? And that became a transition in my life where I said, I do not want my life defined by the sword anymore. I want it to be defined by the cross. And so in your notes, I just literally left two blanks. I say, I participate in the earthly kingdom when I do this, or I participate in earthly kingdom when I, or God's kingdom when I do this. And there isn't a fill-in per se. But what I want to do is I want to read some things that I wrote down here, and I want for you in your own mind to think, what is the one that right now in my life probably uh, I gravitate toward the most so that I can be at least aware of it? Or maybe it's not even something I say. Maybe it's something that you just know. I participate in the earthly kingdom whenever I do this. See, if you're not aware of it, it'll probably continue to control your life. So I just put down some things here for myself. I participate in the earthly kingdom whenever I rehearse my hurts. Whenever I magnify the wrongs that others have done to me. Whenever I make generalizations about an individual or a group of people. Whenever I insist on writing my own story about a particular person based on a quick interaction. Whenever I use social media to provoke anger. Whenever I allow myself to be desensitized to violence and hurt and pain. Whenever I continue the cycle of hate and stereotypes that I've learned from others. Whenever I choose to participate in gossip. What is it for you? When, when, do you, when are you most vulnerable in participating in the earthly kingdom and operating by the sword? And then I put down, I participate in God's kingdom whenever I do this. And again, maybe find one where you say, man, I need to keep reminding myself of this because I, I whatever, forget about it, I, I gravitate away from it. I participate in God's kingdom whenever I choose to be a blessing to someone. Whenever I pray for those that I hate or strongly dislike. Whenever I serve those who I think should be serving me. When it's maybe somebody in the service industry and I wasn't treated the right way, but I still serve them with my words and how I treat them. When I immerse myself in the love and the grace and the mercy of God. When I want to say something and I'm fired up, but I just choose to remain quiet. 
even when I know I'm right. When I choose to initiate peace after I've wronged somebody. My daughter Alyssa did this with me because uh, about two weeks ago, I went to get some ice cream out of the freezer that I had saved for myself, you know, one of these little containers, and she had eaten it. And uh, she did not just eat it, she actually left a note. And she said, how much do I owe you? That was it. I said, Alyssa, I love you. And I'm not going to have you pay me, but don't you ever do that again. Here's the deal, guys. The hope of the world doesn't lie in the earthly kingdom. And the hope of the world doesn't lie in some sword and doesn't lie in our words and it doesn't lie in our actions. The hope of this world lies in a completely different type of kingdom. And as we enter this Christmas season in which Jesus, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, him coming into our world and we realize that he is not the God who is against us, but he is the Prince of Peace. Our job, our responsibility is as we sense our security in Christ, as we sense where we stand with God, as we become more and more at peace in our relationship with him, to then in turn re-gift it and say, wherever I go, I am going to be a peacemaker. Colossians chapter three, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Hebrews chapter 12, work at living in peace with everyone. Today, there is actually a cross that marks the spot in no man's land where that 1914 Christmas truce took place in World War I. And so my prayer for us as we wrap up today is very simply this. May the cross mark our life. When we've been wronged, when we've been hurt, when we see something that we dislike, maybe when we see two friends who are at odds with each other and we're just really feeling awkward and don't know where to stand But we would say the cross is going to mark my life. I'm going to do whatever I can do to bring peace and to help reconciliation take place in my immediate world. Let's pray.